You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm Miles Lassiter. Normally on Startups for Good, we interview external guests. Today, we turn the mic back around and focus on purpose building, what we're up to. We did a webinar recently called Ready to Build. How do I know if I'm ready to be a startup founder? Have you had a nagging feeling that you'd one day like to start a company or have people told you they want to work with you or for you? Perhaps you're in a moment of career transition where you're exploring your next steps. You could consider yourself a future founder, but how do you know if you're ready and what are the things you should consider? So I'm CEO and co-founder of Purpose Built. I'm joined by Ryan E. Chipman, head of human capital in the webinar. And we talk about what makes a great startup founder, what common misconceptions there are and when to know you're ready. Part of what was fun for me is being able to incorporate in some of the previous episodes that we've done. Episode 86 with Noam Wasserman, author of The Founder's Dilemmas. We referenced that. Alex Lazaro, author of Out Innovate, episode 20. And Ali Tomasib, author of Super Founders, episode 64. Check out that one as well. If you want to learn more about Purpose Built, there's our website. And you can also listen to the Access Ventures podcast. I was interviewed for their More Than Profit, December 8th episode. So check that out. Stay tuned for the Fireside Chat. Hey, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. We want to welcome you all to our webinar called Ready to Build. So hi, we're Purpose Built. We're a venture studio focused on building innovative businesses that expand economic opportunity. I'm Rainey Chipman, Head of Human Capital here at Purpose Built and previously Chief People Officer at Startups. Also have a background in executive coaching. I want to also introduce you to Miles Lassiter. Miles is a three-time startup founder, including one IPO, former venture capital, and now CEO and founding partner here at Purpose Built. So to kick us off, um, we wanted to start with a fun question today. So I'm going to hit Miles with, can you share with us what is your founder spirit animal and why? Yeah, I was thinking about this before we started. And thank, thank you, everyone. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I was thinking about this before. And I find it a little hard, you know, I love elephants, so I wish I could say elephant, but I don't know if that's really the right answer. I think I came down to camel because Alex Lazaro wrote a book about innovation and proposed that camel's the right model rather than unicorn. And I was inspired by that. He's saying, one, it's a real animal rather than unicorns are fanciful, fake things, is resistant carries its own water and is uh, able to live um, in really challenging environments and travel long distances. So I, I think I aspire to be that way, is, is able to be successful even when resources aren't plentiful. Love it. Great one. You want me to share mine? Yeah, please. <laughs> so I'm going to choose- I couldn't get you to share it before we started. Mm -hmm. so. No, I'm going to pick the, the eagle, the bald eagle. I'm inspired by how the eagle has come back from nearly extinction or extinction. And I just, I think they're so fierce yet so majestic and they fly up above and kind of leverage thermal currents 
go great distances and great speeds when needed. So that's my my spirit animal when I think of starting something and building something that will last. It's amazing that we both uh, tapped into traveling a long distance. Mm, okay. Maybe that theme will stay with us throughout the day. Awesome. All right. Well, let's kick off with a like a quick overview as um, founding partner and CEO at Purpose Built. Can you share with us just a little bit? Why did you start this venture studio and what is the focus? So we co-found startups with outstanding entrepreneurs and those startups help create economic opportunity for U.S. middle class and small businesses. So that's our our purpose and our why is really helping everyday people improve their lives. We've got a blog post that goes into more detail about some of the industries that we concentrate on. It's called Economic Opportunity and Purpose Built. So I encourage people to check that out if you're interested in more background. You know, fintech, upskilling, future of work, you know, growing small businesses. Uh, we're about a year into Venture Studio. Before that, we invested under the Purpose Built name and pre-seed and seed. Um, and we've built a, a great, a small but mighty team. We're working with five founders right now and building a, a number of exciting businesses. So that that's the quick overview. I could definitely share more. Right on. Well, we can we can dig in more later. And if there are questions, we'll be happy to share more about what we're up to here at Purpose Built. Let me touch on quickly why we wanted to host this event. So as Miles mentioned, we want to work with exceptional founders. And we really believe that there are a lot of great founders around, but they may not know it yet. So we just wanted to give more people some tools and frameworks to think about if they might be ready. So let's get into it. One of our favorite ways to start meetings at Purpose Built, speaking of elephants, is to call out the elephant of the room before we jump into an agenda. So Knowing that this is on a lot of folks' mind, I wanted to just kick us off by asking Miles this question that's on everyone's mind. Is this even a good time to start a business given all the market conditions? Yeah, I think timing is something that people ask themselves a lot and we'll dive into other lenses on timing, I think later probably in the discussion about timing in your personal life. But you're asking like, is the external timing right? And I would I would think about that in a few different ways. One is that there's always problems to be solved in the world, regardless of whether it's boom times or whether VC funding is flowing at the same levels that it did before. And so if you're excited to solve problems, you can find plenty of them. And sometimes in times of economic uncertainty or change, new problems become obvious and available and people are more willing to change their ways. So there there are some advantages there. And I would also say that in the early earliest stages of starting a company, your real risks are, are you building something that solves a problem for real people? Are you making something that people want? And that is a very kind of micro thing. It's not a macroeconomic question. It is, have I found people who have a problem that they're willing to pay to solve? And the other biggest risk is also very micro and and even internal, I would say it's team risk. Do we have the team that can execute on this opportunity and perform at a high level without flying apart from sort of internal stresses, right? And so too many startups in the early stages fail to live up to their potential or actually go out of business because of team dynamic issues. Some research suggests that maybe 60% of the startups that fail 
the root cause is related to team. And so if you think about those two as being the most important risks at the beginning, those are much more in your control than you may think of when you're you're looking at headlines or you know thinking about the world out there and external timing. Yeah, I love that reframe of how to you know when how to think about if this is a good time. And another yeah. uh, thing that comes to mind to me, and I think we've talked about this before, is like good old fashioned good business, right? Like you know if you kind of stay on course with tried and true principles of thinking about where the pain is and how you might solve it and how to build really thoughtfully, um, there's always space for that. So yeah. I love that reframe. Yeah, I think there's a lot of great companies that have been built even in the midst of economic recessions and started in recessions. You know, I, I started my first business, we incorporated in March of 2000, which was the peak of the NASDAQ. So that was like the pop of the dot-com bubble. It was harder to get capital, but it's easier to recruit people, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it doesn't mean that there's zero capital. I mean, when you look at today, there may be headlines in sort of the startup-oriented press about a slowdown of VC funding, but if you compare it back 10 years ago, it's still dramatically more 20 years ago, you know, dramatically more than there was. And so it somewhat depends, like, what are you comparing it to? Is it a good time compared to what? Yeah, exactly. In, in coaching, a lot of times, you know, and in recruiting processes, I'm working with folks who you know, have been somewhere for a little while and they're worried about making a a change due to the market conditions. And I always remind them that work flows to the competent. So if you're a good talent and people trust you and you're, you know, a good team member and working on your own development stuff, work will always flow to you. And I think probably the same goes for a great founding team. If you've got, you know, a great group of people assembled and you're building something important, you know, customers will come your way for sure. Right on. Well, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, whether or not this is even a good time. I think we've maybe resolved that uh, it could be worth giving it a go. So, you know, what are what are some ways that you think about what makes a great startup founder? How do you think about that? Yeah, there's there's a number of different ways to think about this. I think my perspective is that mindsets are more important than particular skills. You can build those skills over time. If you have a mindset that you can figure it out, kind of a growth mindset that you can learn it, that's really critical. And a certain amount of confidence in yourself, not to the delusional level, maybe uh, maybe (laughs) a little delusion, but not total delusion. Maybe that's the right way to be uh, on the continuum that look, other people have done this successfully. Like I've got to be able to figure out how to do this. So maybe I don't know everything today, but I'm really good at X and I'm going to make sure I, I use that. I think those are important mindsets and there are others um, that we can talk about. You know, I think to take another lens on it, there's there's a lot of myths out there, right? About what makes a good founder, just sort of misconceptions. If you casually pay attention to the press or like only hear certain founding stories, you're going to Yeah, I, I get folks coming to me, you know, in conversation with us who are worried that they don't have a good idea yet or they don't fit a certain profile, or they're not sure to think about, they're not sure how to think about if they're open to getting involved with the venture capital community. Yeah. It's kind of, there's like a, a lack of kind of knowing how that how that game works. Those are some, some yeah. things people are concerned with when they have an initial conversation with me. Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of different threads that you were talking about there. And I think, you know, Finding an idea is an important step early on, 
but it is a discrete phase in, in the life of a startup. And in fact, while critically important is not the bulk of, of like the long-term total work that most founders will put in. So because it comes early, it's often something that people who are thinking about founding will think about a lot, but I think it gets a disproportionate amount of mind share in terms of thinking like, am I a fit or not? Because it's a discrete period of time. And, um, you know, like by working with a venture studio or, or other ways, you you can get help with it. I was, I was talking about the myths and, and I really like this book, Super Founders. We had the author, Ali, on our podcast and he spent hours and hours gathering data on a set of VC funded founders. So these are still founders. These are founders who have gotten over some level of hurdle, right? And then those that achieved the billion dollar unicorn status. Again, these aren't necessarily perfect representations of like average and successful founder, but it's it's one data-driven way to try to get at some of these points. And you know, he he lists just all these myths, like the the age, you know, people the median age in in his data set of billion dollar companies median age 34 with a founder's age does not correlate strongly with success older or younger showing you know founders from 20 to in the 60s university rank i mean i, I don't know if you can see this but this is like uh, 1 to 10 uh, 11 to 100 and 100 plus it's basically all even like the yes the top universities are somewhat higher represented but there's people across the whole distribution. Mm-hmm. And and the question also people often have is around like, do I need to be a, a technical founder? And he his data shows roughly like half of, of the founding CEOs are technical or not, even even in VC backed, you know, which you would think would lead more technical. So I think um, it's interesting that the data on age came back kind of like doesn't matter. I bet stories people are telling themselves about that would be different. I think there are there are some industries that there are some exceptions. It seems like like uh, life science does tend to skew somewhat older. Mm, for sure. example. having um, more years of research and whatnot under your belt. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, a newer uh, kind of myth I think that has shifted is a question around oh, do I need to move to a giant city in order to start something or a certain yeah. city? Yeah. where a hub may be. So I've noticed that myth has changed quite a bit in the last three, four years. Yeah, I think for a time, there was extreme concentration of where VC dollars were going and therefore, you know, probably directionally uh, causal both ways, but there were extreme clusters of VC funding. You've seen that lesson somewhat. You've seen an opening of VCs being willing to found teams that are more spread out. And I think that's only going to accelerate as people get better at working remotely. And certainly the pandemic time just cracked open investors' willingness to, you know, to do deals without meeting people in person. Now, there's there's an advantage to being in person, at least at times, and people are figuring out what that rhythm is and, and how to do that. And I think we're all getting better at that. But uh, geography is not the overwhelming thing that it, that it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that too. Another one that's come up from folks is, well, what happens if this doesn't work? How, 
how do you, you know, is this going to make me look bad in terms of my career trajectory? Yeah, I think it, it depends on what your career goals are. I would say for someone who's been interested in being a founder and who, you know, wants to be involved in startups and business in some ways, I don't see how it's a negative. I think if you are involved in a very specific career path that kind of ladders on top, like, you know, let's say medicine, right? Like if you, if you left med school, did a startup, and then, you know, you didn't do your residency and internship and like, may, maybe, I don't know that, but it, it seems like that could be yeah. the type of career where you would, you would derail a very traditional, you know, step-by-step career path. But if it, I would say in the, if you're generally interested in business and startups, wide functional area, like it gives you more experience. It gets you more decision-making and broader scope. Like you're learning really valuable skills. And I think being able to explain and articulate what you did and what you accomplished. I've seen some people do this really well on their LinkedIn and they'll, they'll list, you know, founding CEO, identify 10 pilot customers, developed a product plan, like launched initial version of product, raised $1 million or didn't write, you know, was unable to raise and then went back to work. They just say it like right on there. Yeah. Like list some of the skills. And I would say that, you know, for most startup founders, like the type of jobs you want anyway, those are going to be a plus. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's some jobs where that's a negative, but are those really the jobs that you wanted anyway? I wonder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, just being clear on your narrative and transparent about the experience and then trusting it'll speak to the right people. You've hired more people than I have probably. So (laughs) what's your take? I think when folks represent themselves like that, it shows transparency and paints a nice clear picture of their path and everyone's no one's path is linear. (laughs) Um, that's not how life works. That's not how careers work. And so I think, you know, nowadays we're seeing people take breaks to do caregiving, to take care of their health. You know, that's a new shift as well that we're seeing in LinkedIn profiles and resumes. And that was not something people were comfortable doing even a couple of years ago, but more and more folks are embracing that and being really clear that that's what they're up to. And you know, and why, like, I'm going to do this and take a break. And then I come back, I'm going to be more creative and ready to rock. So, you know, I, I, I um, speak well, I was thinking back to the previous thing we were discussing. If we, if we could go back to the, to the mindset point, I thought of two others that I think are important. Yeah. The one is, I believe that, you know, founders, one of the fundamental jobs to be done is to solve the chicken and egg problem. Or sometimes it's like four way. It's sometimes I call it like jacking up the house because <laughs> you need to, have a product it feels like sometimes to sell to customers before they want to pay but to build a product you need a team to make the product but to get a team you have to pay them so then you need money and investors want to know you have customers it's like seems like a circle round and round but if like that kind of thing is exciting to solve or you think you have an instinct on like how you would solve that like that's that's a you know potential clue right like mm-hmm. That's a mindset that I think is important. And then another one that I that I think about a lot is like, at least within the team, if not solo founder, like you need long-term optimism and short-term pessimism. So this is one of my mental models of thinking about this belief that you can succeed, it's possible. And 
some some level of confidence we talked about before. But if that's all you have, then why are you motivated to do anything? Ah, eh, things are going to work out. You know? <laughs> Everything is awesome. <laughs> yeah. But if uh, you also have this short-term pessimism that says, as long as we work hard right now and do these three things, you know, it's like, <laughs> and it's like the balance of that, because if all you have yeah. is the pessimism, like, why is it worth all the work? It's yeah. like, you're never going to get there anyway, because everything's breaking, you know? So it's like that tension. Sometimes you find it in different people in the team. And sometimes it's it's inside of one person that got both sides of that. Yeah, I let, I hadn't heard you say that before. Long term optimism, short term pessimism. I like that. Yeah, I'm a big believer that beliefs drive behaviors, behaviors drive results. So it's always important to check in with our with our mindset. Maybe one more thought before we jump out of this one. Jump off of this one. You know, not everyone is in a position to quit their full time day job. And, you know, very few people have the resources to just take six months or take six years and try this, you know, try this out. So what's your advice to folks as they think about whether they need to quit their job in order to try to start something? I think there are some people who give the advice, if you're not 100% committed from day one, like it's going to fail. And I don't know that I buy into that. I do have this notion of like progressive commitment. I noticed in my founding journey, even when I was working full-time, there was sort of this onion I was unpeeling and becoming more and more committed uh, over time and more willing to do things. So I do think that you become more committed and it's part of many successful founding journeys that things start as a side hustle or people don't leave their job until they found some customers or they spend a lot of time learning about a market, talking to people, building a prototype, you know, whatever it is that they can do without leaving that day job. Or sometimes it's about saving, saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not financially comfortable, or I'm not, you know, personally comfortable where I am financially. I'm gonna build up a savings cushion before I dive into this. So I think there's a lot of approaches to that. Some of that depends on your own particular financial situation and your risk appetite. I think that doing a little bit to move in the direction of your dreams is better than doing nothing. Yeah. I think this is a great segue to a broader question around, you know, how do we know when we're ready? And from my own experience working with folks who, you know, get a little traction in their career and then sort of take a moment and say, wait a second, what what is next here? <laughs> you know, am I staying on sort of this trajectory? Do I want to take a hard left? Am I not paying attention to this dream I have and not listening. And so, you know, my advice is always like pay attention to those little knocks, those little calls and like tune into them. And it may not mean you should make a change right now, but, but those little knocks that you hear are in those little calls are there's something there. So I'm curious on a like practical level, how can folks think about knowing when they're ready? Yeah, I think one is getting goal clarity. When when I talk to people who are thinking about becoming a founder, it sounds so basic, but sometimes people either don't have a conversation with their potential co-founders or they don't have it with, with themselves clear enough to know, am I this to make money? Am I trying to make a particular change in the world? Am I, you know, wanting control? Like this sort of be my yeah. own boss kind of sense, like, or something else. Like what is... If you had to pick one of those. Yeah. What's driving me to do this? Yeah. yeah. What am I? Am I trying to prove something to my dad? Like, <laughs> Ooh, that's a common one. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, what, 
really like what is it, it? Is. <laughs> at least be truthful with yourself like what is my goal here and that can help you optimize towards it right i mean yeah that's right and basic but yeah you know. for some folks it's like oh my parents are going to be so freaked out if i do this like yeah yeah so it's the opposite it's like i I'm afraid to do it because my parents wouldn't approve. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've certainly heard that too. Dean Wasserman, who was on our podcast as well, of uh, Founders Dilemmas, uh, talks about the model of like personal market and career. We talked earlier about market assessment, like kind of on the macro level, which I think, you know, matters, but people way too much focus on it. And then personal, which we've talked about a little bit, which is like, do I have the savings that I want? Do I have the support from you know, my spouse or you know whoever I'm living with? Do I do I have certain obligations personally? You know, my my plan to start a family. Am I you know what is what is my personal situation and is it the right time for me mm-hmm. to intensively focus on starting a new company? Is assessment to do and really check in with the people in your life that okay, like if I'm going to be spending a lot of energy and time in this direction, what are the trade-offs and what does it mean for you, right? Like, so I think that's a really important assessment to do. We ask our, we provide those questions to our entrepreneurs and they've been really appreciative of it. Like, oh, these are such great things for me to be thinking about. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about at Purpose Bill is like, we don't want to talk you into starting a company. Right. Uh, You know, people have to decide if it really is, something that aligns with their goals and aligns with their personal timing and situation. But we love to start companies with people who, you know, are ready. And then career-wise, right? So you may, depending on what your goals are and what type of company you think you want to start, you may come to the assessment, like, I want to get more skills, network, knowledge. You know, I, I'm, I'm not ready from like a career or like human capital perspective. And... While this certainly could be true, again, I, I often think people like overdo this one and they send, they they're, they keep moving the goalposts. You know, it's like, I'll be ready when I mm-hmm. learn sales and then they learn sales and then they're like, well, but you know, I really could learn something else, right? Like, but do I know enough about finance? And it's like, you're never going to know everything. And, and a lot of being a founder, you learn on the job. Yeah. So you don't, you don't want to keep moving the goalposts on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Love that. And yeah, just taking a fresh look at, you know, that trying that mindset of trying to make everything pristine or perfect, like it's pointless because yeah. yeah, like you said, as soon as you get there, you'll make up another goalpost or another, you know, reason that potentially you're not ready. Yeah. So we, we talked earlier a little bit about, you know, do I have to go all in or are there some small steps I could take first? I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about what are some of those first steps folks could take or where might be a good place to start? I think sometimes people worry that there's like a a very specific playbook or, you know, an order that things have to be done when you're building a company. So curious, um, and let's chat about what are some of those first steps? Do they need to be in a particular order? Yeah, that's a good question. What order do things have to be in? I mean, I I agree with you. There's multiple successful orders. There's probably also some orders that wouldn't work. (laughs) That might be a fun example. Yeah, like what what order wouldn't work? Well, think about that one. But I think learning is often like a very early step. I remember, you know, myself, I just read a ton about other startups and tried to hear founders speak. And today there's so many podcasts with founders talking and 
you know, you can read biographies and try to see the patterns from other people's lives. And some of what you'll see is that they started before they were ready, right? Quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think if you're relatively serious and like getting closer, you know, the steps that you think about are maybe improving your your network or specific knowledge or skills. Again, I would I would urge people to think of a very concrete short list that doesn't like become ever expanding. You know, you could work to find a co-founder so that, you know, for myself, I found co-founders in school. You can find co-founders through like meetups and other types of events like that. There's formal like co-founder dating things you can go through. On the um, co-founder one, I, I'm i curious what your thoughts are on the pros and cons of having a co-founder really early on. You know, wh- where does that help people move faster and better yeah. and where sometimes does it get in the way it, versus just sort of being more on your own as a solo founder? Yeah, I think solo founder, you are on this emotional roller coaster by yourself and you so. may feel like you don't have anyone to share it with. And you do have more control. Right. Mm -hmm. And so depending on the relationship you have with your co-founder, sometimes it can feel like control means you go faster, but, but sometimes a lack of accountability, some people react to that and slow down. So some of this again is about like self-knowledge. Do you work better in a collaborative environment? And are you going to feel challenged to be your best self? Or are you going to get mired in in friction and like, you know, pushing for control with a co-founder or whatnot? So I don't think there's one right answer for every situation. But I think those are some of the considerations on my on my mind. I think you were alluding to like, can you get a co-founder too early almost? It was almost like one of your questions. And yeah, I think for some of our entrepreneurs, that question has come up. Like Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when do I want to prioritize thinking about this and how? Yeah. I don't really think that that's possible. There's a number of stories from our podcast startups are good where we've had people talk about intentionally deciding to start a business with it, with another individual, what I call a team first startup mm-hmm. and saying, we want to work together. We're aligned on some big picture things, values, uh, maybe industry or like type of change we want to see in the world. And we think we have complementary skill sets, which I think is, is really important. If you're too alike with your co-founder, I, I think that can cause issues. So you want to be thoughtful about that. And it definitely works in many cases where you, you find the person first and then together go seek the idea. Yeah. But it, but if you're not really sure about the industry and you sort of pick someone who's deep in an industry and committed to an industry and you end up wanting to do a different industry, I guess in theory, like that would be picking a co-founder too early, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good things to think about. What about when folks are wondering if they should like practice or have a little side, you know, yeah project first. Have you seen that play out for folks? Yeah, I don't I don't have good data on that, but anecdotally I think it's great. I mean, you get to practice with people, especially if you're doing it with someone else, or you get to practice with tools. You go through a certain part of the process, you in a low stakes way for yourself and potential collaborators do something, right? Like startup weekends are one example of that where you don't know if it's going to be more than the weekend, right? And you're kind of collaborating for that weekend or hackathons. Or another example, or you could literally just, you know, start working on something outside of your work hours and see if you can sell something. And maybe that literal thing grows into something. I think it's much more common that, that that's not the thing, but mm-hmm. that gets you out there meeting people, maybe a co-founder gets you learning the skills that help you spot the opportunity, or you learn how to do marketing or coding or something else that drives you forward. 
So I think I think it's great. I think side projects are really wonderful. And when should people consider working with a studio as an option? Yeah, we serve as a social co-founder. And so we are hoping to be the answer to what do I do if I don't have a co-founder right now? Yeah. And, and or I don't have an idea, but I want to start a company. And particularly if you're aligned with our mission of economic opportunity. So if you're thinking about a studio, I think you want to figure out what is their model. Um, some studios more will be hiring a CEO, right? So they have a fully baked thing and they want mm-hmm. they want a more fully baked leader to take over the reins of that company. There are all kinds of models in between. And so making sure you know what kind of studio you're working with is important so that you're a match for that. And that's the kind of ride that you want to go on, right? That's the journey you're interested in. I think the benefits of working with a studio can be de-risking, going faster, feeling a sense of collaboration earlier on, but getting some of the benefits of solo founder later in terms of control, perhaps. So it can be a blend of that. Uh, we we have founders come to us and say, I've done everything in a startup before. I've been you know, on, on all of the journey, except for I wasn't the one that came up with the idea. So they're, they're really focused on that, like that idea, mm-hmm. wanting to get on the best idea and have help. Uh, either identifying it or fleshing out an idea that's really going to work. And that's the value prop that that attracts them to working with a studio. So, yeah, uh, I, building on that, I think it, for folks who haven't worked with a studio before or haven't started a company before, might be surprised to learn that I would guess over half of the folks we talk to in exploratory conversations have been founders before and come to us because now they know they know what they didn't know and they understand where they're strong and they are very clear about where they want partnership. And a lot of those themes are around, I know I want help de-risking. I want help going through a fundraising process. I get questions about, can you help me hire my founding team? So I, I have been kind of surprised to learn how valuable it can be even for experienced founders to work with a studio. Right. Yeah. I was just talking to someone yesterday who's built a successful company and is really excited about the opportunity to work with us for a second go round. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we've got a couple questions that have come in. So how about we shift gears and bring Alice in? Hey, Alice. Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm Alice. I'm on the Purpose Built team. And so we got a bunch of questions in the intake form as well. Uh, and obviously, feel free to drop questions in the Q&A. So I'll be asking Ryan and Miles some of your questions. So Stephen just asked, as a freshman in a nonprofit startup, recruiting a board is what I'm finding as the biggest challenge. What advice would you recommend? So this uh, a freshman, meaning like an early stage, mm-hmm. like first, first year running a nonprofit a uh, startup nonprofit. You know, I think recruiting for a board and, and Ryan, you can chime in, it's, many ways is like recruiting for any other position in terms of making sure you've got the mechanics right of, of communicating about, you know, your organization and why they would want to join you. It's about being clear about what you're looking for. The difference in a nonprofit board is expectation is people won't get paid, right? So that's what makes it a little different than, you know, hiring traditionally. And I think that you want to be really clear, like why you want a board. Again, maybe this sounds trite, but like being clear on your goals, like, are you looking to expand your board because you want help with fundraising? Being clear on that and and going to people for that is important. I find that 
a lot of nonprofit boards are too big. So I don't know what your situation is, but I personally, like this is, this isn't like exactly what we do in the venture studio, but you asked me, so I'm going to answer. Like I think too many nonprofit boards uh, are diluted in their decision-making power and diluted in their accountability because they are too large. So I, I would say, keep your board smaller and then have advisors, have donors who are friends and, you know, do other things like that. I don't know, Ryan, if you have anything to add. I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of data that shows the most effective teams are under seven or more, seven or less. So five to seven is kind of a really good, if you want your board to be active and, you know, sort of teaming with you on running the organization. And then like Miles said, you know, create a charter, like get clear as a board, why we're here, what's expected, you know, and commitments. Yeah. Awesome. Kaleem asked, we have heard so many so many times that being a founder is lonely and a lot of success stories are from two founders doing something completely different, but met each other through the VC or PE firm and built something new. Should founders try to think of this as a career path path versus I need to build my product and that's it? If so, what do you suggest for building connections? Yeah, I think this is the model of a venture studio is to help bring founders together, founding teams together to build companies you know that might not know each other already. I think that's what what this is alluding to. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think when you're a founder, there's both. There are connections that will help you envision and run your business, but there are also connections that you need on a personal level and to help you be thinking about your career. So one thing I often encourage people to think about is what do you want your personal board of directors to look like, right? And so that can be a mix of mentors, colleagues, all sorts of different roles in your life, right? And what do you want that to look like? And once you know that, take a look at your current state and think about if there are folks in that circle right now that maybe need to be invited out and then gaps where you need to go kind of shore up your connections. And and then you can ask for help. You know, I think it's it shows a lot about someone's leadership when they are self-aware and thoughtful about kind of evolving their personal board of directors to be able to support them where they're at and kind of what they're becoming. Another question we got was how much validation do I need before I build an MVP? So the process we use at Purpose Build is trying to identify some initial pilot customers before you spend any time building. And it, and it will depend on the exact industry and the situation. But if you force me to give a number, I would say like three on enterprise and 10 on you know small business or consumer. I mean, these are really round numbers, but there are cases where one would be enough in an enterprise situation. A first customer is, is you know, a large enough deal that it's worth building an MVP. The thing that I would encourage people to do is Reed Taylor, who, who works with us head of innovation at Purpose Build, read his Harvard Business Review article about MVPs. People often design them to confirm what they already believe rather than design them to disprove. Um, so you want to be thoughtful about like what are you really testing? What are the hypotheses that, that matter? And also think about really the emphasis on like the minimum, I think. Often people tend towards building software too early or investing too much in products when they they could have done it with spreadsheet or you know maybe no code or maybe phone calls right and 
if you if you take that validation as too solid too early and build and invest too much, you you can misread the signals. So I would I would think of it as you're still very much like validating the customer demand and pain during that MVP and, and don't don't close your ears to all that you know feedback like um, keep keep staying in touch with potential customers. Ilker asked, how does your venture studio's equity model work? Do you fix a term or it depends on the founder slash startup? We believe that the best founders build the best companies. And in order for Purpose Built to be successful, we want to attract the very best founders. And we flip the script on a traditional venture studio. Often with a venture studio you may have heard of, often the model is the venture studio owns most of the company and the founder owns some of it. We flip it the other way. Most of our deals will be the founder owning most of the company and it's their company. And we are a co-founder helping to get it off the ground and helping it be successful. Harumi asked, competitive analysis can lead down a rabbit hole. Should we limit our focus? How do we approach an idea that has different approaches and can be broken into different companies? Oh, that's like two different questions. Well, I'll I'll start with the competitive analysis one. I think most, most, at least first-time founders' instinct is to focus too much on competition. And it is a, I would say, emotionally safe thing to do and kind of fun. Like I like doing it, right? You, you sit on your computer and you're researching the com- competition and you're reading all the stuff and you're making maybe a big spreadsheet or a bunch of notion pages on all of your research that you found. And it feels emotionally safe to keep doing that rather than what for most people is emotionally a little more scary, which is to go talk to potential customers. And I would encourage people to lean into that much more. And your customers will tell you what the consideration set is for them. You know, there's certainly cases where there's a monster competitor that customers don't know about yet. And they have some really big advantage, like some network effects that are just going to take over the whole market. But that that's, that's an uncommon situation. It's much more common that, yes, they're competitors and you may, may be kind of obsessing on them, but... 90% of the potential customers have never heard of them and might still need a solution. And if you're listening carefully to them and, and finding what they need, there's often room. And you know some knowledge of what the competitive landscape is will help you hear that and figure out how to differentiate, but don't waste too much time on it. One of the fun questions I've been asking folks who are exploring working with Purpose Built is, if you had to go out and talk to 100 customers, who would you enjoy speaking with? Who would you be interested in speaking with? Because it's true. Not, I mean, a lot of people are introverts. They don't want to go, you know, get into any sort of sales mode. That's not their jam. So it can be a little bit intimidating. And it's been really fun to kind of flip it with folks and say, well, what if it was super fun? What if like you couldn't wait to talk to the next customer? And I think that might inform what you would be passionate about building. Brilliant. Yeah. That's obviously the best where you don't have any emotional resistance to having those yeah. conversations. Yeah. Should we tackle part two? How how do you approach an idea that has different approaches and can be broken into different companies? Yeah, it sounds like one that would benefit from some more detailed discussion to to really be sure we're answering the question. You know, purpose well, we generate variants of an idea. We'll we'll think of them separately and we'll rank them through our rubric, like score them. Um, And I've often seen founders do this, make up their own rubric of like, how do I want to score these things? 
and and decide among different ideas that I'm thinking about. And so if it's different enough, just break it out as a separate idea and, you know, then pick one, right? And 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 if you if you need to, you can you can try to gather data from the market, you know, by talking to potential customers, doing customer discovery with two ideas at once, right? It's probably hard to do five, but you know, you might be able to do two at once as a solo founder. How much initial capital and runway do I need to start a company? This is really gonna depend on your situation. I'm a big believer that capital strategy needs to fit the business. Right? Like what is the industry and what is it that you're trying to accomplish? If you're thinking about like personal runway or, you know, how much savings do I need? Again, it's going to depend on like how quickly you think you can either raise money. So, so how adjacent are you to capital? How plugged in are you already into capital? Do you know how to fundraise? That kind of thing. And, or like how quickly you're going to be able to get customers to pay you at enough cash flow to, to keep you going. So you know, if you were to force me to throw out some numbers, you know, I would say like two or three months feels too short, you know, like for a personal runway, you know, depending like how quick you are to get customer money or investor money, like six months could work. You know, I, I've seen people, you know, more leaning towards like 12 to 18, which is like one of the reasons why venture studios can be helpful if they are providing some capital early on to bridge that gap you know, at the point. And again, you don't have to go full-time day one and et cetera, but figuring out about like, what is that path there? If you're going a VC funded route, you know, it, it can take 18 plus months to raise outside capital from, from like the day that you decide you're, you're working on a business. Sometimes it happens a lot faster, but it can, it can take 18 plus months. How should I determine who my first hires are? Ryan, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I don't think there's one way of thinking about this at all. I think like you said about the capital strategy, it it sort of depends on the business strategy. And, you know, normally I think there comes a time when someone all of a sudden realizes they're just way over max capacity. And, you know, our goal would be to help people get ahead of that so that you're not overextending yourself too much and burning out. But, you know, there's there's almost always this natural feeling of, and usually due to success, right? So things are going well, um, all of a sudden customers are coming in. And so you're like, oh gosh, where where is my, where do I need more capacity? So that's the question I always think about is what is our strategy and where do I need more capacity? And it just depends on the business and it depends on you as a founder, where your strengths are, what energizes you. So that, that's kind of around the, how do you know when to hire at all? And then, what I like to help people do is an exercise on, you know, what would you like your dream team to look like? You know, how do you envision that? And then what are some steps to get there, right? It's not like you snap your fingers and all of a sudden you have this amazing team of five to seven people. It is a process and it is a staged process. So I think having self-awareness is really important. And if that's something you already have, great. If you need help, understanding your strengths as a leader and strategizing on a hiring plan, you know, then you should ask for that help. That's something that we'll, we do with our founders. Yeah. And it just depends. What would you add to that, Miles? I think another lens on this is to imagine what is the culture that you want to build. Mm -hmm. And those first few hires are best if they're aligned with that culture, because they will define and create the culture that you do end up having in actuality. So the closer you can get the two, the better. Yeah, that's a great ad. 
I think our last question before we wrap and then we'll kind of stay on for open Q&A if anybody has more specific questions. But Lindsay's asking, could you share the story of one of the five founders you're working with today? What has their journey and progress with Purpose Boat looked like and where the venture studio model has been especially integral? Yeah, I don't want to get into too many specifics on the webinar, but we can chat about it afterwards. I'll give you a few examples. One is we had... Someone come to us who was introduced by one of our venture partners, who's been a leader in startups a number of times before, even through Exit, and knew that she wanted to start a business, but was originally working on an idea, got some negative feedback on it and thought, okay, maybe maybe I need help figuring out what's the right idea to work on. And I want some help with the earliest stages of startup because I've done everything else. I know how to do it, but I want help there. And so this is a founder that once we hear, okay, this is what you want help on, like that's what we focused on is idea validation. We're able to book a lot of customer conversations. We're able to share our list of ideas that we have and are ready to work on together. So so that's that's one story that I can share now and we, we can share more. Offline. Well, maybe that's a good segue to just wrap up this section. Thank you all so much for coming. If you want to learn more about us, you can find information at purposebuilt.vc. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today, and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.